section twenty two of the art of letters this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox the art of letters by robert lind thirteen tennyson a temporary criticism if tennyson's reputation has diminished it is not that it has fallen before hostile criticism it has merely faded through time perhaps there was never an english poet who loomed so large to his own age as tennyson who represented his contemporaries with the same passion and power pope was sufficiently representative of his age but his age meant by comparison a limited and aristocratic circle byron represented and shocked his age by turns tennyson on the other hand was as close to the educated middle-class men and women of his time as the family clergyman that is why inevitably he means less to us than he did to them that he was ahead of his age on many points on which this could not be said of the family clergyman one need not dispute he was a kind of new theologian he stood like dean farrar for the larger hope and various other heresies every representative man is ahead of his age a little but not enough to be beyond the reach of the sympathies of ordinary people it may be objected that tennyson is primarily an artist not a thinker and that he should be judged not by his message but by his song but his message and his song sprang from the same vision a vision of the world seen not subspecie eternitatis but subspecie the reign of queen victoria before we appreciate tennyson's real place in literature we must frankly recognize the fact that his muse wore crinoline the great mass of his work bears its date stamped upon it as obviously almost as a copy of the times how topical both in mood and phrasing are such lines as those in locksley hall then her cheek was pale and thinner than should be for one so young and her eyes on all my motions with a mute observance hung and i said my cousin amy speak and speak the truth to me trust me cousin all the current of my being sets to thee one would not of course quote these lines as typical of tennyson's genius i think however they may be fairly quoted as lines suggesting the mid-victorian atmosphere that clings round all but his greatest work they bring before our minds the genteel magazine illustrations of other days they conjure up a world of charming vapid faces where there is little life apart from sentiment and rhetoric contrast such a poem as locksley hall with the flight of the duchess each contains at once a dramatization of human relations and the statement of a creed the human beings in browning's poem however are not mere shadows out of old magazines they are as real as the men and women in the portraits of the masters as real as ourselves similarly in expressing his thought browning gives it imaginative dignity as philosophy while tennyson writes what is after all merely an exalted leading article there is more in common between tennyson and lytton than is generally realized both were fond of windy words they were slaves of language to almost as great an extent as swinburne one feels that too often phrases like moor and fell and bower and hall were mere sounding substitutes for a creative imagination i have heard it argued that the lines in maud 
all night have the roses heard the flute violin bassoon introduce a curiously inappropriate instrument into a ballroom orchestra merely for the sake of euphony the mistake about the bassoon is a small one and is i suppose borrowed from coleridge but it is characteristic tennyson was by no means the complete artist that for years he was generally accepted as being he was an artist of lines rather than of poems he seldom wrote a poem which seemed to spring full-armed from the imagination as the great poems of the world do he built them up haphazard as thackeray wrote his novels they are full of sententious padding and prettiness and the wordiness is not merely a philosopher's vacuous babbling in his sleep as so much of wordsworth is it is the word-spinning of a man who loves words more than people or philosophy or things let us admit at once that when tennyson is word perfect he takes his place among the immortals one may be convinced that the bulk of his work is already as dead as the bulk of longfellow's work but in his great poems he awoke to the vision of romance in its perfect form and expressed it perfectly he did this in ulysses which comes nearer a noble perfection perhaps than anything else he ever wrote one can imagine the enthusiasm of some literary discoverer many centuries hence when tennyson is as little known as dawn was fifty years ago coming upon lines hackneyed for us by much quotation the lights begin to twinkle from the rocks the long day wands the slow moon climbs the deep moans round with many voices come my friends tis not too late to seek a newer world push off and sitting well in order smite the surrounding furrows for my purpose holds to sail beyond the sunset and the baths of all the western stars until i die it may be that the gulfs will wash us down it may be we shall touch the happy isles and see the great achilles whom we knew there even if you have not the stalwart imagination which makes browning's people alive you have a most beautiful fancy illustrating an old story one of the most beautiful lines tennyson ever wrote the horns of elfland faintly blowing has the same suggestion of having been forged from the gold of the world's romance tennyson's art at its best however and in these two instances is art founded upon art not art founded upon life we used to be asked to admire the vivid observation shown in such lines as more black than ash buds in the front of march and it is undoubtedly interesting to learn that tennyson had a quick eye for the facts of nature but such lines however accurate do not make a man a poet it is in his fine ornamental moods that tennyson means most to our imaginations nowadays in the moods of such lines as now droops the milk-white peacock like a ghost the truth is tennyson with all his rhetoric and with all his prosaic victorian opinions was an aesthete in the immortal part of him no less than were rossetti and swinburne he seemed immense to his contemporaries because he put their doubts and fears into music and was master of the fervid rhetoric of the new gospel of imperialism they did not realize that great poetry cannot be founded on a basis of perishable doubts and perishable gospels it was enough for them to feel that in memoriam 
gave them soothing anchorage and shelter from the destructive hurricanes of science it was enough for them to thrill to the public speech poetry of of old set freedom on the heights the patriotic triumph of the relief of lucknow the glorious contempt for foreigners exhibited in his references to the red fool fury of the seine is it any wonder that during a great part of his life tennyson was widely regarded as not only a poet but a teacher and a statesman his sneering caricature of bright as the broad-brimmed hawker of holy things should have made it clear that in politics he was but a party man and that his political intelligence was commonplace he was too deficient in the highest kind of imagination and intellect to achieve the greatest things he seldom or never stood aloof from his own time as wordsworth did through his philosophic imagination as keats did through his aesthetic imagination as browning did through his dramatic imagination he wore a poetical cloak and avoided the vulgar crowd physically he had none of browning's taste for tea-parties but browning had not the tea-party imagination tennyson in a great degree had he preached excellent virtues to his time but they were respectable rather than spiritual virtues thus the idols of the king have become to us mere ancient fashion plates of the virtues while the moral power of the ring and the book is as commanding to-day as in the year in which the poem was first published it is all the more surprising that no good selection from tennyson has yet appeared his complete works contain so much that is ephemeral and uninspired as to be a mere book of reference on our shelves when will some critic do for him what matthew arnold did for wordsworth and separate the gold from the dross do it as well as matthew arnold did it for wordsworth such a volume would be far thinner than the wordsworth selection but it would entitle tennyson to a much higher place among the poets than in these years of the reaction he is generally given End of section twenty two